listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. I want to talk a little bit about Justin Trudeau here for a bit because there's two bits of analysis to discuss on the radio program today. One is in the Wall Street Journal. The other is a new book from journalist and writer for the National Post, John Iveson, who will be on this radio program on Tuesday when his book officially comes out. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But I want to run through some of the key takeaways from this analysis. And let's begin with the lead in the Wall Street Journal. And keep in mind here that this is written essentially for non-Canadian readers. And here it is. It starts out... Justin Trudeau did little wrong in his supporters' eyes during the first three years as Canada's Prime Minister. In the fourth, his popularity has dropped so far that his party may lose its majority in October elections. Well, the article then goes on to outline the basic elements of the SNC-Lavalin scandal, and then continues here. Several polls show Mr. Trudeau's liberals are trailing the rival Conservative Party or in a statistical tie after beginning 2019 with a comfortable lead. Nearly two-thirds of Canadians disapprove of the job that he is doing, according to polls released in mid-July by Ipsos Public Affairs and Angus Reid. They cite the SNC-Lavalin matter as the primary reason. Now, what is it that the pollsters think? And I'm reading here from the Wall Street Journal... This is what the pollsters think. Based on current data, some pollsters say the best Mr. Trudeau can expect from the election is a minority government needing another party's support to govern. Quote, if the election becomes a referendum on Justin Trudeau, says Nick Nanos, head of the Ottawa-based Nanos Research, the Liberals may lose. Now, what follows in this article in the Wall Street Journal is a detailed recounting of the SNC-Lavalin affair, repeating the well-worn chestnut that the self-proclaimed feminist and progressive leader has now squandered all of his bona fides. Is that entirely true? Ask yourself that. I think perhaps the truth is only partially, because let's remember that women and progressive voters will ultimately have to choose where to mark their ballots come October. And in vote-rich Ontario, the Liberals are counting on a Doug Ford boogeyman to scare those progressives right back into the grit tent. Here's exactly what I'm talking about. Here's the Prime Minister speaking to the Liberal faithful Wednesday night in Ottawa. The middle class can't afford another Doug Ford. And it's up to every single person in this room to make that case by sharing our positive ambitious vision for the future. And you know the canvassers for the Liberal Party, for the Feds, are already hearing this at the door. They are hearing a positive reception to the message that says, a vote for Andrew Scheer is a vote for another Doug Ford. The question will be, how much stock should we put into summer polls or this kind of punditry? The Liberals are banking that despite an obvious slip in popularity, if the perceived choice in riding rich Ontario is JT or DOFO, where are the progressive votes going to go? And I think if you ask yourself that question and try and take your partisan perspective, if you have one, out of the equation, I think you know what the answer likely will be. 
But perhaps the bigger threat to Trudeau and the Liberals is not SNC-Lavalin, which requires a long-form think piece in the Wall Street Journal to explain. Perhaps it's something easier to understand and more infuriating to the entire political spectrum in this country, and that is being an international embarrassment. You know, Canadians, as a nation, we love a popular elsewhere story. If you make it elsewhere, you've made it here. But we equally, and perhaps even more, loathe anyone who brings ridicule upon the great white north. And here is where John Iveson of the National Post comes in. Because perhaps it's true that Trudeau's true troubles started on that disastrous tour of the subcontinent. Here's the headline from Iveson's new book. Justin Trudeau's longtime advisor, Gerald Butts, accused India's government of trying to, quote, screw the liberals to help his Canadian conservative rivals during the prime minister's controversial ridden trip to India. Trudeau's visit to India in 2018 was panned because of his dressing in traditional garb. You've seen the pictures. Here is the quote. We walked into a buzzsaw. Narendra Modi and his government were out to screw us, and they were throwing tacks under our tires to help Canadian conservatives who did a good job of embarrassing us. Gerald Butts is quoted as saying in this new book by the National Post political columnist John Iveson. That book, Trudeau, The Education of a Prime Minister, comes out on Tuesday. Of course, you know that Butts resigned as Principal Secretary to Trudeau, but now has returned to the fold and will work on the Liberals' re-election campaign. Quickly, my point here, as I sum up, is SNC-Lavalin is a crisis and a scandal that the Liberals can survive. Justin Trudeau being thought of as a joke on the world stage, they cannot. big spender why don't you come and spend a little on me on these girl guide cookies as promised here's the story out of spartanburg south carolina where a man praised on social media for spending 450 bucks to buy girl scout cookies has pleaded guilty to plotting to kill a prosecutor and witness in his drug case yeah this 46 year old offered his cellmate 10 grand to arrange the killing he pleaded guilty thursday and then, once he was finished with pleading, it turned out they found out on Facebook a Greenville mother had posted this man's picture saying, Hey, isn't this awesome? This guy bought all the Girl Scout cookies so that they could get out of the cold. The man's going to spend 25 years, 25 years of life in prison. Enjoy your cookies, my friend. From Wendy Gillis in The Star today. This on the just absolutely nightmarish murder scene in Markham. Before police discovered that murder scene, a panicked international community was coming together online, desperately trying to track down the man they believed may have killed his family. In Israel, Tunisia, and the United States players in a multiplayer game who hung out in an online forum called Perfect World Void were growing increasingly alarmed that a Canadian they knew online was not joking around this time. The graphic images some of the gamers received in the early hours of Sunday needed to be taken seriously, 
and they needed to contact police. Global's Catherine McDonald is our crime specialist, and she has broken much of this story over the past couple of days and joins me on the line. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Alan. Yeah, the, what Wendy Gillis is reporting is something uh, we've known since uh, Monday, because uh, Sunday night we were contacted by one of the fellow gamers who knew Manaz. Uh, Monday night I spoke to another fellow gamer. These were men uh, who had been playing video games with him. One told me he had known him for seven years. And on uh, on su- Sunday, when he started talking about the fact that he had d- killed his family, uh, he allegedly, this man named Manaz, who they didn't know where he was from, uh, allegedly posted uh, the fact that he confessed basically online. And uh, when people didn't believe him, they started asking him, you know, where's the proof? So he said, you want pictures? And I, I read screen grabs of the uh, chats that were going on. And basically, he, he at one point posted some pictures showing uh, bodies of a couple of women lying. Uh, they, they were lying there, and uh, people wanted to know that they were real. And uh, so they said, you know, put your name, Manaz, your game name on a piece of paper and take a picture in front of these bodies. And uh, we saw that these images, uh, this image he had taken where he has a piece of paper in front of the bodies with his name on it. Uh, and then at one point, he actually posts a photo where he's holding a bloody knife. Again, this is a man... They, all they know is his name is Manaz. At this point, they don't know anything about him. Um, and uh, they ask him, why, why? And this is when he, uh, this Manaz man says, you know, I had been telling my parents that I was at university. Three years ago, I started mechanical engineering, but I failed out. And I've actually been going to the mall. Uh, the same way, direction as the university. I get on a bus every morning, but I go to the mall for a few hours. They think I study for four hours a day. I come home and... Uh, the reason I'm doing it now, because everyone's saying, you know, what, why now? He says, I couldn't wait any longer. They, they thought I was graduating on July 28th. And, of course, this was July 27th, uh, the last time anyone heard from any of, you know, the family, the, the sister, the parents, and the grandmother. So um, really upsetting. And one of, the, one of the gamers told me that at one point uh, this man named Manaz, who they all knew so well, uh, said, because um, they were trying to figure out where, you know, they're like, why are you telling us this? And he says, I'm going to get caught. Um, and they say, at one point he says, does anyone have PayPal? I have money that I'm not going to need where I'm going. And at this point, uh, Manaz actually transfers some money, and on that transfer has, is his address and his phone number, um, which is how I believe the police finally did get, were able to get uh, an address. This man who I spoke to actually sent me the screen grab of the PayPal with his address and his phone number. So, uh, you know, and, and then the other part of the story, which is so, so sad, is, uh, a couple of the gamers told me that no, no one had believed him because Manaz had talked about uh, the fact that he was going to be doing this. He talked about uh, he changed his handle in the uh, chat room, um, and they were disturbing handles. Uh, and he had been talking about doing this, but no one believed him because they thought he was a troll. They thought he was just saying this stuff. And but on the night uh, on s- Sunday night or s- Saturday morning, early s- Saturday night, early Sunday morning, when they started getting these photos. And then the photo with his name in front of the body. So that's when they realized, like, this this is not a joke. This is just so tragic um, and, and just a terrifying story. But a couple of things on this, this gaming community. And let's get back to this whole idea of all of these threats and sort of they just figured it was a troll. I suppose that that is a f- not an unusual thing to have happen in some of these chat rooms. 
you know, I'm not involved in this online gaming culture, but I, I do believe, and I've done stories over the years on, on people that become addicted to video games, and they believe their friends are the people they chat with during these, game, during these games. And from all, by all accounts, it appears that uh, Manaz Zaman may have been one of these young men, 23-year-old men, uh, you know, who had this whole uh, online life, virtual life, where he, he thought his friends were the people he played games with over the seven years uh, that I hear he was involved. And in fact, the, the forum, the the video gaming sort of form, the, the, uh, the discourse form where he would chat, said that he had been a player for many years here. And, of course, they, they didn't want to take – they said none of us had any idea. We take you – know, you know, we have no responsibility for what happened. Of course, we had no idea of what was going to happen. But, you know, it, it does paint a portrait of a, a young man who allegedly lived a very uh, isolated, sad life where uh, he was – his friends were – his friends who were in in the virtual world, he didn't actually know them, but he felt that they were his friends. And so he became isolated from the real world, and, and perhaps uh, maybe this is why no one saw this, people who knew him, no one saw any issues with him, because he only chatted to people online. You were in the courtroom when he made his first court appearance? Yes, I was there on Monday. And how can you describe that? Yeah, I mean, it was chilling, because he came into the courtroom, uh, Given the allegations, you'd think he would look nervous. You'd think he'd be looking around the courtroom, and perhaps you know. Often we see uh, suspects in tears, given they know that you know they're they're never maybe going to get out of jail at this point. Certainly not going to get bail at this point of, of the proceedings. And he looked very relaxed. Uh, he didn't look around the courtroom, and there were four members of his extended family there. Um, yeah, I mean, he was wearing a civilian black T-shirt, and and frankly, I I, I couldn't I couldn't really understand how a, a guy who was allegedly, you know, um, responsible for four first-degree murders could be so relaxed. And uh, again, maybe maybe in his mind, you know, he had been waiting for this, as his, his friend said online, that he knew that he was going to get arrested, he knew he was going to go to jail, and this is all part of the plan he had set out, knowing that, I mean, the sad thing here is if he really didn't want to shame his parents because he hadn't been born to university, really weren't, weren't there other options here, uh, you know, and, and this is the part of the, the story that is so difficult to understand, is why couldn't he have told someone, and, and I'm sure his parents would have understood if, if the alleged motive uh, was because he didn't want to shame them by, by the fact that he hadn't been at university all these years. It's a horrifying story. Catherine McDonald is the global news crime specialist who has broken much of these details over this week. Catherine, always great to have you on the program. Thank you so I, I much. I should mention one more thing, Alan. The family is going to be holding a funeral today, uh, which is going to be a, a very sad occasion. Uh, the brother of Moniruz Amanaz, who is uh, Zaman, Moniruz Zaman, who is uh, the father. I've, I've been speaking with him this week, and of course, uh, that's happening this afternoon at the same time that Manaz Zaman is appearing in court, so the family won't be there today. I, it's, it's very unlikely much is going to happen in court, but certainly this is going to be quite a spectacle for this community. You know, to think of four caskets coming out of a mosque, it's going to be sad, and it's, it really is a tragedy for this community and everyone that needs this family. Thank you, Catherine. You're welcome. Just quickly a note, something that Catherine mentioned there, Discord. If you have young people in your house that play video games, keep your eye on Discord. It is a chat site. It is not regulated. You can have your own little chat rooms. And this is there's no oversight. So this is where, you know, somebody could make threats like I'm going to kill a whole bunch of people and nobody sees and nobody flags it. And I'm not necessarily saying that these gamers should have or could have interceded and changed the outcome of events here. But Discord is a frightening place for parents of kids who are online all the time. I will just tell you that.
In Columbus, Ohio, an Ohio school district says students endangered a teacher by intentionally exposing her to bananas. WSYX-TV reports the teacher at the school in Columbus went into anaphylactic shock, ended up in hospital after three seventh graders smeared bananas on her door and threw the fruit at her in class last November. A sign on the door had warned students that the room was supposed to be banana-free. Serious. Kids can be jerks. You know who else can be jerks? Cats. God, I hate this freaking cat. A cat in western Pennsylvania is bucking stereotypes. It loves to swim. Tissy is an orange Maine coon who regularly cools off in the family pool. This is 55 miles north of Pittsburgh. Sunny Hare telling the Tribune for Review she rescued Tissy as a homeless kitten five years ago. Tissy got curious about water and then started to swim. Tissy even wears a floaty around the waist and likes to be snuggled in the pool. Cats, am I right? Cats are deadly animals. Bruce Springsteen News. Bruce Springsteen's son is becoming a firefighter in Jersey City. Springsteen's wife posting congratulations to their youngest child on Instagram. You followed your dreams. Told her to stay safe. Love your brave heart. Was playing You're on Fire, was that... Was that insensitive? I thought that was, uh, that was really smart. Was it a little maybe? This is so juvenile. Perhaps. A Vancouver Island resident is thanking Metallica for saving her life after she fended off a wild cougar by playing this. On Tuesday, July 20... I'll just shout over James Hadfield. Uh, the Vancouver Island resident and her 8-year-old husky retriever were jogging on a logging trail, and a cougar came up. And they just blasted that Metallica, and the cougar said, No, nope, I'm into hip-hop. I'm out of here. Cats are deadly animals! <laughs> Uh, also possibly uh, deadly, and this is actually serious, Lyme disease-carrying ticks are spreading across populated areas of Canada. I'm sure you know about Lyme disease-carrying ticks. You may have heard about this, but the trouble is that warmer summers now means that there are more of these ticks and more of this bacteria. And what you should do, according to the experts... People should learn how to check for ticks and to do it daily because you can check each day. You know that the tick has not been on there for longer than 24 hours, and that is important for your own safety. I, I was suggesting that perhaps you could make a romantic thing of it. If you're like couples and you go for a walk in the woods afterwards, let's check each other for ticks, baby. Brett Belches is 640 Toronto's medical expert. Brett's on the line. Brett, why is it important to find a tick within 24 hours? Well, this is probably, and first of all, thanks for having me, but this is probably one of the few windows that you are going to have to actually prevent yourself coming down with Lyme disease if that is a tick that is infected with Lyme disease. So 
if the tick bites you and you get it off right away and it hasn't said uh, to any significant degree, you're safe, you're out of the woods. Um, if you don't notice that tick, usually I'd say 24 is a little bit short. It's more like 36 hours. But if you don't notice that tick within that first 24 to 36 hour window, at that point in time, the odds are you've already been infected if that was an infected tick. And now the only option is to get treated. Uh, give me a sense of what we're looking for here. So they're very, very tiny. So uh, when you see ticks, they can be all, you know, not much bigger than the size of the head of a pin. So what you really want to look for is you want to be examining all areas of your skin that are exposed, especially areas that might have come into contact with taller grasses and vegetation. Uh, another thing as well is, is a lot of people forget to check pets, but if you're out with pets, you definitely want to be looking at your pets as well because they can get uh, bitten by ticks as well, and they can be carried into the home by your pets, and they can even be in your pet's fur. So you certainly want to be checking pets too. But these are tiny little uh, dark-colored, almost round-shaped bugs. If you were to examine them uh, under a microscope, they almost have a spider-like appearance. But to our eye, they look almost just like a little dark, round, uh, pinhead-shaped uh, object. And they're quite small, especially before they've fed. Uh, but they are going to be a much darker color typically and have a raised texture versus the rest of your skin. So you're looking for things that are on your skin that wouldn't normally be there. Now, as they start to feed, they tend to swell up, so they will be more visible over the time. So they do feed on our blood, and over time, from the time they bite you, they will get larger and larger and more noticeable. So uh, one of the key things I would say is, you know, don't just do the check when you first walk indoors. You might also want to check a few hours after because the ticks may be a little bit more visible a few hours after they've been attacked versus when they first bite. And what is the actual procedure then if you find the tick, you're, uh, you're not, it, it, it's beyond the 36-hour mark, now you actually have to get some kind of drug. Is that an injection? Is it, is it pills? What is that? Yeah. So, so first of all, if you do notice it before 36 hours, what you want to do is remove the tick. It's not that hard to do. So just get a pair of tweezers. And you basically want to grab onto that tick as close to your skin as possible um, because what you don't want is to have parts of the tick get stuck in your skin and for you to just break off the tip of the tick. Um, Pull that tick out and then clean out the rest of what's there with an alcohol uh, swab, and that should be fine. But that being said, um, if you haven't removed it uh, within that 36-hour window, a lot of the time what will happen is it'll just come off on its own. But if it hasn't, again, you still probably want to try to remove it with some tweezers. But at that point, what you need to do is you need to get yourself uh, seen by a physician if you are in an area where we know that there's Lyme disease there. So, you know, this is a big, important consideration. In many areas, there are lots of ticks where there is no Lyme disease and getting bitten by tick really doesn't mean too much. And a a medical professional probably isn't going to do too much for you if you're in one of these areas with no Lyme disease. So you can look that up. It's on public health websites in most jurisdictions to find out if Lyme disease is in your area. But if you haven't removed that tick and Lyme disease in your area, that's when you need to go to a doctor. And typically, physicians will put you on a preventive course of antibiotics. So it's usually a pill that you would take for a period of time, and that is very effective at preventing you from developing Lyme disease. Brett Brelchitz is Global News Radio's medical expert. Always appreciate you being on the program. Thanks, Brett. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I love a good, dumb criminal story. This one out of Ohio, where the FBI has solved a bank robbery in record time. Thanks to the alleged bank robber himself. Why? The 54-year-old man, according to authorities, handed his name and address over with the hold-up note when he robbed a bank in Cleveland. This is a robbery. Nobody gets hurt. 
The hold-up note read, according to a police report. However, authorities were more interested in what was on the other side of the note. The hold-up message was written on the back of an Ohio Bureau of Motor Vehicles form. Uh, and according to the special agent Vicki Anderson of the FBI, the form listed the name and address of the man who is now charged. You, sir, are a dumb criminal. All right, let's get into the music, shall we? Because we're going to talk a lot about different kinds of music and uh, some music news. Let's, uh, we got any Eddie? We got any Eddie for us? Darling, just dive right in. Follow my lead. You know, Ed Sheeran's popular with the kids. That's, that's who you're listening to right there. Ed Sheeran, news out of Los Angeles that his Divide Tour... He's now one for the record books. Polster confirming that the 28-year-old British singer's tour is now going to set the all-time highest-grossing tour record with Friday's show in Germany. The forecast of 736.7 million tops the previous record of 735 million set by anybody want to guess who previously held the record for most uh, money on a tour, on a single tour, anybody? Pink Floyd, U2? No, U2. Thank you. U2. And you, you win a U2 album on your uh, iPhone that you didn't ask for now. Oh, That's what you get. Sweet. For that. Wait, I deleted it already. No, Come it's, on. it's back. Don't do that to me. There it is. Next up, this is not exactly a, a, a music story, but it has a musical theme for the second time in a week. The Baltimore International Airport has seized a rocket launcher that a service member was trying to bring into the United States from military assignment. Second time today. Uh-huh. Let's just cue up a little Bruce here. Everybody's got a- Maryland officials say the launcher was recovered yesterday at the airport as a sergeant was returning from overseas. Not live. The device was not live. But it couldn't go on the commercial flight. The airport says it's going to hold the weapon until it can be safely returned to the sergeant. The unidentified traveler said he was in the military and returning from Kuwait with a rocket launcher. And like I said, this is the second time this has happened. In both cases, no charges. But here's here's what I'm going to ask you. You got to take your shoes off. You got to take your belt off. And you think to yourself, well, this rocket launcher is probably okay. There's no problem with that, is there? I want to talk about CFNY for a moment. If you're a certain vintage and you grew up in southern Ontario, you may have a similar experience that I had. And that is discovering this quirky radio station that played music that I'd never heard before, that was nowhere else. All the radio was full of classic rock and, you know, other 80s schlock. But this radio station was different. It was called CFNY. And, of course, Alan Cross, who's a regular visitor on this radio program and still works for that radio station, he has put together just an incredible look back, a a look back at that radio station, how it began, and the kind of importance that it played not only for music, just for, you know, us disgruntled kids wearing black in Burlington, but for kids all over Ontario and Canada, and it really broke a lot of music in North America that otherwise we may never have heard about. Here's a little bit of the documentary on CFNY, and you'll be listening to one of the announcers that worked on CFNY back in the day, Scott Turner. 
KCFNY 102 Toronto and music from Talk Talk. It's my life by request and the day doesn't go by. We don't get a request for that song. It's about three years old now. It still stands well. Also, Colorfield, that's new. It's called Running Away, exclusively from the It was Spirit. playing essentially a lot of music nobody else would touch. Uh, some would eventually. As, as, uh, you know, a lot of these artists were being heard for the first time, became mainstream. But it was exciting to be at a place, or wanting to be at a place, uh, when I first got in there, that embraced music that I liked, that nobody else plays. That is part of the uh, documentary on CFNY, and certainly they played a lot of music that you just did not hear anywhere else. And what's weird about it now is if you throw in, you know, 80s music into a Spotify playlist, a ton of the music that you hear, you never heard on the radio anywhere else in CFNY back in the day. The things that back in the day just really didn't get played now are sort of seen as, well, those are staples of of 80s music and that alternative music sort of kicked off grunge and all of the music that came after it. Here's Ivor Hamilton, who was music director at CFNY, followed by Alan Cross, talking about how they just pick music they like. Some of those bigger acts that, you know, were out there at the time, we just decided that... They didn't need our help, you know. They were getting the help from everybody else in the world. So we, we'll make our own hits. We'll find the new bands that we can support. And and you know, there was lots of examples of bands that they would come and do. You know, these new bands that would come to North America for the first time, and they would they would play. You know, they play like a small club in um, somewhere in the states. They play a small club in Detroit, and they would play a small club in you know somewhere else like Cleveland. And then they come to Toronto, and they'd be doing a show at Maple Leaf Garden. And or they'd be doing a show at the C and E or, or you know, a, a much bigger hall. So it was very impactful on what we were able to do to, to support new music. CFNY would play a song, uh, and they would do all the heavy lifting, um, making the song familiar to the audience. And then when the song reached a certain level of popularity, well, then other stations would jump on it, and the station became known for breaking new bands. So when, for example, Martha the Muffins, Echo Beach came on, uh, you know, that was 1979, it was the Metro Music album, uh, CFNY played it, became a hit, then it gravitated to other radio stations, and uh, some people would say, oh, I've heard that, that CFNY played it. And we'd also get credit from record labels and from managers and from the bands themselves saying, you know what, nobody would play this band, play our songs before you did, so, uh, you know, we're loyal to you, and, and anything that comes along, we will give it to you first. Of course, you're listening to Echo Beach from Martha and the Muffins, and that you can hear that you know that 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 that's not an unusual song to hear or to know nowadays. But back in the day, I mean, there's only one radio station that played it until it sort of moved across the board and became a hit, and that happened a lot through the '80s. Uh, if you're like me and uh, you want to look back a little bit on that and hear some of the music from back in the day and uh, see some of the people that you may have listened to back in the day, uh, check that out. That is uh, Alan Cross documentary on CFNY 102.1 The Edge, and you can see that on YouTube. Just throw Alan Cross and the ongoing history of music into there or on a, the social media platform that you enjoy. You can see it there. I want to talk about Quentin Tarantino and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm a big Tarantino fan. I'm not always crazy about all of his movies, but I'll tell you one thing. I haven't seen the new movie yet, 
But man, has it ever garnered a lot of different opinions. The critics on one side think it's absolute garbage. One of the headlines from the first day was, nobody dares tell Tarantino no, and they should. And then The Atlantic yesterday writing a huge piece about how this was absolutely transformative, perhaps one of the greatest movies that he's ever made. And keep in mind that Tarantino himself has said that he will only make 10 movies in his career. And this is the ninth one. Here's Vicki Sparks on The Morning Show talking more about the end of Hollywood as we know it. Right off the bat, I will say I am not the biggest Tarantino fan. So I come into it. I try not to be biased, but I might be a little bit biased coming into it. So I will say there's so much good. Leo and Brad deliver two of the best performances we've seen out of them in a decade or more. They have a great chemistry together, and their story is quite interesting. Margot Robbie gets to come in and play Sharon Tate. And I use the term play loosely because she gets to say about 50 words in the entire movie, which is an odd choice. I wanted to know more about Sharon Tate and have her be more than kind of this beautiful blonde lady, which is how she's kind of existed mythically in history um, since her death. So they didn't really explore that. So, okay, that's an interesting choice. Um, They tell the story of Leo's character, who's kind of a B-list actor. Cliff is his stuntman slash kind of gal Friday who helps around his house because, of course, Leo's got quite a raging drinking problem. He is an actor in Hollywood in the 1960s, so that kind of came with the territory. Uh, So they tell that story while Leo tries to kind of build a better career for himself and Cliff tries to keep things on the reins for him. And then they sprinkle in this dose of the Manson family murders while rewriting history at the same time. So I won't get into what they do, but it it's fiction mixed with just a little fact, but predominantly fiction. Um, there's so much good. He gets the stuff about the era so right. I mean, his details are exquisite. You feel like you're in 1969 cruising down Sunset Boulevard. The cars are right. The shops are right. The clothes are right. The hair is right. Everything is right about it. And I liked a lot of it. I'm just not sure that it added up to that much Mm -hmm. in the end. It felt like the pieces of it were better than all of the movie as a whole. So that's my only complaint. Um, I will say it is probably his least violent movie that he has ever done. Mm. So if you have... With the Manson family involved. I know. Wow. I know. So if you've previously been turned off by kind of the the excessive violence, which isn't my favorite thing, um, this is probably a good Quentin Tarantino movie to start with. I mean, there's one big scene where you will have to bravely close your eyes and Mm, pretend it's not happening. But for the most part, I mean, this is not... Django. This is not Hateful Eight. This is this is a, a a mostly fictional story of a Hollywood era that's gone uh, with one big scene of violence. So for the most part, I liked it. I wish they had used Margot Robbie to the best of her abilities instead mm-hmm. of just having her be a beautiful Barbie doll. But I mean, she does beautiful Barbie doll very well. So. And that was Vicki Sparks talking about the new Tarantino film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is now in theaters. Apparently you only have to close your eyes at one point. Usually, usually you have to do that a lot more in Tarantino films. 
Moving to scooter news really quickly, because you know how interested I am in these Lime scooters and these scooters that have uh, now come to Calgary and to Edmonton as a pilot project and soon could be in Toronto. Well, another electric scooter rider has been fatally hit by a vehicle in Atlanta, and this is the third such death since the scooters, these e-scooters, arrived in the city last year. And now there is more of a push in Atlanta to completely ban them. Of course, there are a lot of questions about, well, how many people got just hit by a car just walking down the street. But nevertheless, that is three deaths in Atlanta because of those e-scooters. Keep your eye on that story. It's going to develop. Did you watch the Jays game last night? I thought this was interesting. Four fans who unfurled a banner in the baseball stadium in Baltimore supporting Trump's re-election were escorted out by police and stadium officials. There's a photo in the Baltimore Sun. You can see it today. They hang a big banner that says, Keep America Great and Trump 2020 during the eighth inning at Camden Yards. The paper reporting the banner remained up only for 10 minutes. Other fans shouting, Take it down, take it down. Camden Yards says they have a policy of no banners to be hung in the stadium with political or commercial or bad taste in mind. Bad taste, you say. Here's the good taste. Jays won that game 11-2. to In Poland, a county mayor in the southwestern portion of that country is now promising a surprise award for the couple who next have a boy in a village where only girls have been vo- born for a decade. Space. This village, which I'm not even going to try to pronounce, has about 300 residents And they don't know why there have been no boys there since 2010, but they're beginning to worry about filling farming jobs in the future. There have been 10 girls born there since 2010. Stats show actually that there are more boys and girls in Poland. Don't know why, but there you go. How about that? Can we finish it off quickly with a little alligator news? A mystery in Switzerland How does a surgical plate from Switzerland end up in the stomach of a crocodile in Australia? That is the mystery surrounding MJ, who is a 4.7 meter long croc that died on a farm last month. Basically, they open up the stomach of the reptile. They find this surgical plate from Switzerland. They don't know who it belongs to. That is just terrifying, folks. This is so juvenile.